Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, the son of Satan, part two. We're in Daniel chapter seven, but do not turn there. We're gonna be in the New Testament totally today. We are using Daniel chapter seven as a jumping off spot. If you're with us last time, Daniel is a, a very interesting book, very, very practical for the first six chapters, very practical application. Uh, chapter seven and following are not as practical. They're practical in the sense of they, they will change your life, but they are very prophetic. They're speaking of future events. And even, even though Daniel writes 400 years or 500 years before Jesus, it's still 2,500 years later, most of it is still future. And so some of this stuff can get a little bit um, tough, uh, if, you, if you will, to discern, some, some of it tough to take. Um, the, the reason why we study the Bible and, we, don't, and we, we go through it as the Bible's laid out and we take, take the verses as they come to us is because I believe that the whole word of God needs to be for the whole people of God. And that if, I, if all I do is go through and pick and choose, by the way, if I pick and choose, guess what I'm going to pick? My favorite stuff. What's your favorite stuff in the Bible? I tell you what mine is. Mine, the favorite stuff for me is the stuff that when I leave here, I, I feel warm and fuzzy and happy and blessed. And that is in the Bible. It is. There's a lot of warm and fuzzy in there. And there's a whole lot, though, that is not. There's a whole lot that's not fun. There's a whole lot that's not nice. There's a whole lot that'll make you sick. There's a whole lot that will ruin your week, maybe your year. And I will say that to you because God is, God would rather ruin your week or your year than, than ruin your eternity. Does that sound, sound like a father to you? Give you a measured amount of pain to deliver you from an eternal amount of pain? That's the way he works. And so since, since we did not write the Bible or inspire the Bible, we take the Bible as it's written. And so we take it line by line, verse by verse. We're at a place now in the Bible that's a bit tough, talking about the Antichrist. There's not a lot of fun about that. There's not a lot of uh, warm and fuzzy about that. There's not a whole lot of practical application about that, honestly, because uh, the Antichrist is yet to be, according to what the Scripture says, and we're still waiting for that event to, to take place. Nonetheless, we have to take the Bible where it is. And so if you weren't with us last time, we began the study of this Antichrist, and we began looking at, at him and, and who he is, and, and it's complicated, and, uh, but it's not. The Bible is written for our discernment. It's written for our understanding. It's not written to confuse you, but it will take homework. It does require homework. I've been studying the Bible as a pastor for coming on 25 years. I've been studying the issue of prophecy, which is where we are right now, for 24 of those 25 years. Studying it not only to understand it, but also studying it to be able to teach it so that I... You know, it's one thing to understand it up here. It's another thing to communicate it where other people can understand it. So I've been at it for a while. doesn't make me an expert. It probably makes me better than you, though, right? So, but all that to say, all that to say, uh, irregardless, uh, it's the Bible is for you. It's not, it's, it, you don't have to have me to teach you it. God, through his Holy Spirit, can teach you. And he certainly uses people that he's gifted and called and put in positions to do those things. Nonetheless, the Bible is for you. You don't have to go to someone else to understand the Bible. You take the Bible and go straight to God. And his Holy Spirit will interpret these things for you. Um, and so you feel free to disagree with me or, or differ with me. I'm going to try my best as we talk about these things, complicated issues, to not give you my opinion. There's a way too many preachers' opinions out there. And I would suggest to you every preacher's opinion, is a, including mine, is a waste of your time. Because you have your own opinion, right? Why do I add one more person's opinion to this? Well, if all I'm going to do is give you your, my opinion, we might as well go home. Because I can't even get my wife to go with my opinion. <laughs> she's, 
she begs to disagree with me, which she has a right to do. She's a free thinker and she's equal, if not better than me in many, in many situations. So, but we're not here to compare minds or educations or anything like that. We're just simply to sit down below the word of God and say, this is inspired text of scripture and we're going to submit ourselves to it and we're going to listen to what it says. It may be hard for us to believe, it may be hard for us to understand. Nevertheless, here we are. We're trusting God and believing that he's going to speak to us. So with all that as an introduction, you ready to jump in? Let's do it. Now we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians, first of all, so you can run to that spot. And then we're going to be in the book of Revelation, Revelation 13, for the remainder of our time together. But 2 Thessalonians to begin with. Now, when we were together last time, we began and ended with a question. When will Jesus return? When will his bodily return of Jesus to the earth, to rule the earth, and never leave? Well, we saw the answer in a large sense Jesus says, no man knows the day of the hour, Matthew 24. Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know the times of the epics of, of the Father's will concerning his kingdom. So there is no date setting here. Anyone who sets a date, let me make it very clear to you, is going contrary to the clear teachings of the scriptures, and in particular, the clear words of Christ. So if you've got a person out there setting a date, you need to go the other way. Just say, God bless you, I'll pray for you. But I'm not going to be a part because that person's a nut. Anybody that thinks they're better than Jesus is And by the way, Jesus, not only does he say that it's no man knows the day of the hour, but when, he, when he's asked the question in Matthew 24, he says, no man knows the day of the hour, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, he says. So the incarnate Christ standing on the earth, and part of his incarnation was he lost some of his uh, omniscience, that was part of the temporary condition of him being on the earth, is that he did not know everything that the Father had planned. as part of what he gave up to become one of us for that, those 33 years. Now, of course, as soon as he ascends, he's reinformed, re reunited with the Godhead. Uh, Jesus isn't sitting in heaven uninformed about when the end is going to come. No, nevertheless, when he was on earth, he was. So you're going to say that Jesus incarnate on earth could know the day or the hour, but that you know the day or the hour? I'm thinking you're a little loco in la cabeza, and I'm going to go the other way. I really am, I'm, I'm, I not, not, I'm not thinking, I'm, I'm certain that you are. No man knows the day of the hour, so get over it. Nonetheless, the scripture do give us, he does say in, in that same text in Matthew 24, that we can recognize at least the, the, the assembling together of his coming, that it's drawing closer in the same way that we can recognize that a storm is coming, in the same way that we can recognize that the seasons are changing. He does say that there. And the Bible does give us many things to sort of weed out to let us know that we're getting closer, and it certainly we are. And so we went over several of those things, and we're going to go over those here briefly to begin with. We, fought, we saw last time, number one, that Jesus' return will not be until after the fourth final ruling Gentile kingdom, namely the Romans. You say, well, they ended 1,500 years ago. I would say they did, but they didn't. Rome was not conquered. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7 requires to say that the re there's going to be a phase 2 that we should be looking for the reunification of the Roman Empire. What was the Roman Empire? Europe, North Africa, and part of the Middle East. So you should be looking for that to come back together. And as a matter of fact, we are seeing to that to a certain degree. So the, not until the final four kingdoms, not until the final form of those kingdoms, which is this reunification of the Roman Empire. You don't have to believe anything that I'm telling you. Did I tell you that already? You're filled. Everybody's free to be wrong. You can be just as wrong as you want to be. Uh, again, I'm not telling you anything the scripture doesn't say. You don't have to believe this. It's, it, my burden isn't to convince you that the scripture is true 
are not true. I don't believe that I'm capable of that. I don't believe anyone is. I believe the Holy Spirit is in charge of the scriptures. So if the Holy Spirit can't convince you that this is true or not, then I'm certainly not going to be able to do it. All I, my job is to, to declare to you what actually it says. Your job is to accept it or reject it, and that's either your problem or your benefit. I am not, not responsible for that. So all I'm telling you is exactly what it says. It says the Roman Empire is going to be reconstituted. It says that there's going to be a king, and that reconstitution is going to have the form of ten kings. That, and that out of those ten kings is going to come a final king. He's going to push out three. So ten minus three leaves a seven. One of those seven is going to be a guy that we know of otherwise as the Antichrist. So here's some things we need to be looking for on the geopolitical scene. We should be looking for the reunification of the Roman Empire, like I said, which is Europe, Middle East, and North Africa. We've already got it to a degree. Since for the past 70 years we've had the UN, we've had NATO. For the past 30, 25 years we've had the European Union. This is, I mean, for most of the people sitting in this room, we're of European descent, if you will, Roman descent, every one of you. You're all Romans. You think Roman. Tell me, the, what's today? Today is what day of the week? Sunday. Who, who named that? Is that an English word? No, that's a Latin word. You got it from the Romans. What's tomorrow? Monday, Tuesday. These are all Roman words. We have a Roman calendar. We have Roman words. We re use Roman numerals. We're Romans. You just didn't know it. We're all Romans. So the reunification of Europe, we should expect that. We've got that in the European Union. We've got a common currency. We've got a common military. This hasn't happened for us Europeans to our ancestors for 1,500 years. Why isn't this on the news? Rome has been reunified. To cross the borders in Europe now is just the same as crossing from Louisiana into Texas into Oklahoma into Arizona into New Mexico. It's just like crossing states. Not like, it wasn't like that, guys, for our, our grandparents. I mean, you, you would have told that to our 91-year-old person that's going to my home church back in East Texas who's a World War II vet that back then that Europe would be the way it is right now. He would have not believed you. Europe was completely divided. Our ancestors, the, the factions of that original Roman Empire have been trying to kill each other for the past 15 years. The, the French and then the Germans and then the English and then the Italians and then the, uh, all of them have been fighting each other for the past 70 years. That's not been true. We've had the reunification uh, at least part of what is the Roman Empire. Not only that, we've had the return of a nation called Israel back to their land. That hasn't happened in 2,000 years. Why isn't this on the news? I've got a country that has been non-existent for 2,000 years. All of a sudden, they reinvent themselves. They reinvent their language. They, they have a currency. They have a military. They're right now the fifth most powerful country in the world. Did you know that, militarily speaking? This wasn't true 70 years ago. This wasn't true for our grandparents. This wasn't true for the previous 2,000 years. Why isn't this on the news? Well, it's not on the news because we don't get all our news nonetheless, but it's in the news of your scriptures. Scriptures have predicted this. You should be looking for this stuff. So there's going to be four kingdoms. There's going to be a final form of the fourth kingdom. Then there's going to be a final ruler out of the ten, uh, the ten kings that come out of that final, the final kingdom, and he's going to enact a final persecution of the Jews. So another thing you need to be looking for is watching for the rise of anti-Semitism. What is that? That is people hating Jews. It seems like a profession for some people. Uh, every kingdom that has risen, if they've gotten a chance to take a swipe of the Jews, Hitler did, was doing nothing new. In fact, Hitler said, I'm only doing what the church and the rulers of Europe have been doing to the Jews for the past 2,000 years. He's exactly right. 
the stuff that he did. Now, of course, he did it wholesale. He did it a little bit better, 6 million Jews in about 10 years. It's doing, that's doing better than, than his ancestors. Nonetheless, we should expect that things to get worse for the Jews and especially for the Israelis. And by the way, did you know, speaking of news, did you know that uh, Israel was, they had over 300 rockets shot into Israel, high explosive rockets shot into Israel this past week? Did you know that? Most of you don't know that. You don't want to know why? Because you don't see it on the news. Let me, let me, let me just put it, put it, by the way, if they had returned fire, which they did, but they had returned fire and they had killed an innocent person in Palestine in the Gaza Strip, would you have seen that on the news? You most definitely would. Why are we so lopsided? Why isn't there equal sharing? Because it's not news. The news is heavily biased against Israel in general and the Jews in particular. Ask me why. I don't know why. They hate them. They absolutely hate them. I, I agree with you totally. But but let me ask let me give you let me give you a perspective. Let's say Matamoros. Anybody from Matamoros? Okay, so we're against them, right? So Matamoros <laughs> fires three hundred rockets into South Padre Island, Brownsville, Harlingen, and McAllen this past week. What would happen? War! Man, we would be at war, I guarantee you. And if we returned fire and killed the innocent, and the news came on and said, those being Americans killed a little Mexican boy, what would we be saying? Sorry. You fire rockets into our country from unhardened military positions like schools and other places, like the Palestinians are doing, and we return fire and kill some of your kids, we're going to say, we're sorry. We don't want it to be this way, but you made the decision to do this. Now, would this be on news? Oh, my goodness. It would blow up the news. Happens in Israel every week. You're not seeing it. Why? Because anti-Semitism. It's a global, has always been a global issue. You should expect it to be on the rise. And it is. So, all this to say simply this, that Paul says everything that we studied last week in about, three, about six sentences here in the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You're ready. Talking about the second coming of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regards to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we know what this is about, and are gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. People were writing false letters, signing Paul's name to it, instructing churches, all kinds of stuff. They had no way to verify his stuff. That's why a lot of his letters, as he, at the end, he writes, these are my own, this is my own handwriting. I conclude this letter this way. This is the way that I write. Because there's a lot of these pseudo letters going around with fake names, nonetheless. Don't be shaken from your composure as if a letter is from us. He says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. No one, let no one in any way deceive you. For it, that is the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Apostasy comes first. We haven't talked about that, but that's, that's something to come. And the man of lawlessness, pay attention to that title. Now this is what otherwise we know as the Antichrist. But he's not called the Antichrist here because he's not called that almost anywhere in the Bible except for two books. The book of 1 John and the book of 2 John. His title here is the man of lawlessness and then he also goes the son of destruction. So there's another title for you. The son of Apollyon it literally says. Who opposes, notice what he does, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, that requires several things. It requires the Jews to be back in their land. Up until 70 years ago, that was not true. How can there be a temple in Jerusalem for the Jews, for the Antichrist to set himself up in, 
If the Jews are not back in the land, these are Bible expositors, couldn't figure it out. Well, now the problem is solved. Israel is back in the land. They're one of the fifth most powerful countries in the world. When you go to Israel with us, you will go with us to a place there called the, Bible, the, the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is an international uh, organization for jewelry, not jewelry, but jewelry, in which they raise money to fund the temple. They have built, among other things, a $180 million uh, lampstand. You know, the lampstand that Solomon built that he put in, the, that, that Moses built to put in the, in the, they've got it built. You can go take your picture next to it. Now, don't touch it. This is worth $180 million. But uh, we asked them, they said, how, how long would it take you to be sacrificing on the Temple Mount? He says, if we got clearance from the Israeli government and from the UN, we could be sacrificing on the Temple Mount today. That's how fast they can move. That's how well-funded they are. But of course, like I said, anti-Semitism is keeping it from happening. And, and also, it tells us in the scriptures that the Antichrist is going to be one that's going to broker the peace, that's going to enable them to do the sacrifices in the temple that they have not done for now uh, the better part of 2,000 years. So let's keep reading. So you've got to have a temple, which means that Jesus has got to be back in the land, and the Antichrist is going to set himself up there. Notice who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of work so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Notice, displaying himself as being God. He's not anti-God. He's all about God. He's going to say he is God. I'm taking God's place. The Bible is, and by the way, why is he doing it in Jerusalem? Where's God's people? God's chosen people. Not New York. Not South Padre. Not Istanbul. Where is he going to go? God's capital city has always been Jerusalem. The whole Bible is written either about or in or from Jerusalem. So it's logical that this is where the guy's going to go. So he goes to Jerusalem because if he's going to say he's the God of the Bible, he's got to go back to the place of the Bible, does he not? So that's what's going to happen. Do you not remember, verse 5, that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. And you know what restrains him now, so that in the time he may be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Speaking of the Holy Spirit holding back this whole movement of the Antichrist. And then, notice, here's this, another title. That lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of coming. Namely, that is the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, verse 9, with all power, signs, and false wonders. So there we have, now you can turn to Revelation 13. We're going to be there in a minute. So there you have some of the things that are spoken of. Notice the titles of this guy. It doesn't say Antichrist here. He's got, because he's given so many titles in the scriptures that are much more prolific than the title Antichrist. 33 different titles allude to him in the Old Testament. 13 titles allude to him in the New Testament. This guy is not a small player, Antichrist. is not a small player in the Bible. He's a major player. He's a major player all the way from cover to cover. As a matter of fact, we, another title of his in the title of my sermon is the son of Satan. Where do we get the title from? All the way back in Genesis. This is just the third chapter of your entire Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. God speaking to Adam and Eve and the serpent after they've eaten of the fruit. Notice what he says. Speaking to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, why not the man? Why not? Because he was a big knucklehead like most men. That wasn't it. Because it explains it later. Watch. I'll put enmity between you and the woman because there's something coming from a woman that's going to be his enemy. Between your seed, notice singular, not seeds, talking about an individual. The serpent has a particular individual that's coming from him. 
and her seed. Now, we're not going to do through Biology 101, but women don't have seed. Unless this is referring to the virgin birth, which of course it is. So you've got a virgin-born king coming. Who would that be? Jesus. And one who's going to be anti-him. Who's that? That's the guy we're talking about here. The son of Satan. Called Antichrist. Here's where it's called Antichrist in 1 John. Children, it is the last hour, just as you have heard that the Antichrist, the Antichrist is coming, even so many Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that it is the last hour. The word Antichrist, we all we hear it as Westerners, we hear it as English-speaking people, which we can't help that. But the, the thing about it is, is that your Bible in the New Testament in particular is written in the, book, in the Greek language. The Greek language allows this word can go two ways. It can be anti the way we understand it. I'm anti this and I'm anti that in the same way this guy's going to be Antichrist. But it also means more often than not, especially when used as a preposition, which is the case here, it's used with reference to being in place of. So if I'm anti something, use it in a, a preposition in their language, I'm just replacing it. So what's happening here, this guy is going to at least attempt to replace Christ. He's not going to be against Christ. He's going to be all in favor of Christ because he's going to say, I'm Jesus. I'm the Jesus of the Bible. I'm the Jesus that died and resurrected. I'm the one that inspired the scriptures. I'm the king of the Jews. That's why he takes a seat in Jerusalem. And by the way, the reason why he's going to persecute the Jews is because the Jews are not going to have any of that. And he's going to be killing them. Tremendous amount of them. It's going to be a terrible time, a bloodbath for, for the Israelis unlike anything they've ever seen. And yes, that is comparing it to what Hitler did 70 years ago. It is, unfortunately. Very sad. So there you go, Antichrist. So his goal is going to be to replace Christ. He's called more often than anything else in the scriptures. He's called the beast. You ready to go in Revelation 13? The most common term that is used to refer to this individual that we know of as the Antichrist, most commonly, common term we find in the Bible, 36 times, in fact, he's called the beast. Verse, let's, let's back up to chapter 12. You're in chapter 13. Look at chapter 12, verse 17, the last verse of the previous chapter. And the dragon, that would be the devil. We don't have time to go over it, but that's who he is. The same one we saw in Genesis, the same, the same one that's that the seed of the serpent, if you will. It's this dragon, this, this, this devil. The dragon was enraged when the woman went off to make war and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. That woman happens to be Israel, but we don't have time to mess with it. You're just going to have to go with me on it. Who keep the commandments. Notice he goes after these. Who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now verse 1 of chapter 13. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. Who? The devil does. So he's like this orchestrator churning up the seas, bringing forth his masterpiece. And notice what the masterpiece is. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Sounds just like Daniel chapter 7 because that's what it is. The, the revelation expects you to know Daniel. If you don't know Daniel, don't mess with revelation. Or don't, don't go into it too deep because Daniel is the, is, a, is the prerequisite. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. There we go. These ten heads and, ten, ten heads and seven horns. And on his horns were ten diadems and his, on his head were, heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Did we see a leopard in Daniel 7? We sure did. Suppose it's a coincidence. No, it's not. And his feet, like those of a bear. Did we see a bear in Daniel 7? We did. And his mouth, like the mouth of a lion. Did we see a lion in Daniel 7? We most certainly did. Notice they're in the reverse order. Why is that? Daniel was looking forward. They're opposite ends of history. They're 400, 500 years apart from each other. John, as he's writing. Daniel, as he's writing, prophesying. 
So Daniel's looking at the backside of history, looking forward. It's future for him. John's looking back. It truly is history. He's looking back at him. So it's reverse order for these kings and these kingdoms. So notice this, this, this beast, though, is an amalgamation of these previous kingdoms and their rulers. So it's important. It's part of, part of his identity. And the dragon, it says, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So this Antichrist who is coming, as we saw last time, is going to be a political genius. Uh, he's going to be a problem solver. He's going to be a military genius. He's going to be an oratorical genius. He's going to be a commercial genius. He's going to be a religious genius. He's also going to be, as we've said before, a devil incarnate. Revelation eleven seven. When they have finished their testimony, these prophets that are going to be prophesying in Jerusalem, the beast, notice where he comes from, who comes up out of the abyss. Do you know where the abyss is? Do your thumb like this. Giggle Maggie's, right? Come on. Come on. Here's your thumb. Now go like this. Okay, that's where the abyss is. It's right down there. Straight down. The Bible holds out that the abyss is called the bottomless pit and that it's otherwise known as the center of the earth. You think about it, it is bottomless there. Everywhere you turn is up. It is the only bottomless place on the planet. He comes from down there. So there's a supernatural dimension to this guy. He's not going to be a regular person. He's going to be some, some supernatural type of individual, nonetheless physical. He's going to be the devil, if you will, incarnate. And so like a conductor standing on the, on the seashore, Satan, this dragon, stands ringing his masterpiece up, if you will, from this abyss, coming out of the seas of the people. And he's this amalgamation of all these countries that have ruled the earth before. But he's going to be the final product of the final kingdom. And he's going to be the final king. So we should expect him. We should see him. So he's famous, though. He's famous not for all those things. The world's going to know him because he's supposedly going to be killed and resurrected. This is going to be, we're going to be getting to the mark of the beast today, 666. I would suggest to you all the things I'm talking about to you up until then are far more important than the number of his name. We do a big thing about 666. It's a very small issue. It's only in one verse in the entire Bible. The rest of the stuff is huge. So we, we, we become heavy on the stuff the Bible's heavy on and we become lighter on the stuff that Bible's lighter on. We tend to be the opposite way. We take 666 and run for it, and we neglect the whole Bible, the things that it teaches. It teaches a whole lot more about this guy than the number of his name, but nonetheless, let's consider. So he he's supposedly dies and resurrects. Look at verse, uh, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Notice, as if. doesn't say he dies. just says it seems that he dies. As if he had been slain and the fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Well, I know who is able to do that, but he's definitely not this guy. He's going to show up in chapter 19 and his name is Jesus. But they're thinking this guy's awesome. You can't defeat him. He was killed and he resurrected He's awesome. We love him. We worship the one who gave him the authority, which turns out to be the Satan himself. And so you now are introduced to two of a three unholy trinity. God the Father mimicked by Satan. God the Son mimicked by the Antichrist who supposedly dies and resurrects just like Jesus. He's a counterfeit. And then we're going to be introduced in a minute briefly to the false prophet who is going to imitate and mimic the uh, Holy Spirit. So you've got this unholy trinity that's beginning to come together, they're beginning to uh, amalgamate. 
And so it's important, though, that you recognize that you hear that he is injured, he receives a head injury, because it's going to be important because we're given a descriptive of what he looks like, but it was written 400 years before John writes it in the book of Revelation. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, among the many other titles of this Antichrist is that he's referred to as this false shepherd, this uh, This bad shepherd, I'm going to raise up, it says, a shepherd in the land, speaking of Israel, who will not care for the perishing or seek the scattered or heal the broken or sustain the the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd. There you go, a title for the Antichrist you find in the Bible. Who leaves the flock. Notice specifically, by the way, emphasis is mine. This is not underlined in the Bible, of course. A sword will be where? On his arm and on his right eye. So that's an arm injury, and that's a head injury, right? Pay attention to that. Remember those spots. His arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be blind. Again, the revelation expects expects that you know what has already been said, especially in the Old Testament. So let's consider what this guy is going to do. It's going to be significant. You remember these locations where he's injured because of what it says here in verses 13 through 17. And he performs, speaking of this Antichrist, this, I'm sorry, the, the false prophet, this third person of this unholy trinity, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. How can he do that? It's not smoke and mirrors. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's going to deceive the whole world with it. Smoke and mirrors you can uncover. This is not smoke and mirrors. Supernatural Power. How are per- a person outside of God enabled to do this? So there is no authority or power apart from God. God allows, th- this is God allowing this to happen. He's allowing these guys to go this far. He's allowing Satan to pull off his final masterpiece. Verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, this false prophet does. And he makes the whole earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Notice that's what it's all about. He's God. We're going to worship him. We love him. He's seated in Jerusalem. He's the Savior. How do we know? They're going to think because he's died and rose again. See, supposedly he has. And he deceives, notice verse 14, those who dwell upon the earth because of the signs which he was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell upon the earth to make an image to the beast, namely who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So several things here to point out. First of all, this isn't the first time that, the world, that a world ruler rises up and creates an image to be worshipped. You think of another place where that happened? In the Bible? Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, the king Nebuchadnezzar creates a statue and he, cre- he requires everyone to worship the statue on pain of death. By the way, the statue is marked with sixes. 600 feet tall, or I'm sorry, not 600 feet tall, 600 60 cubits tall, six cubits wide, and is worshipped with six different kinds of instruments. So this, is, this, is a, this mark of the beast thing is not just a matter of buying and selling. It's a matter of heart surrendered. Do you want to surrender your heart to some individual and worship him? Well, that's what this guy's going to be asking you to do. In fact, he's going to be requiring it of you on pain of death. So let's consider what, what takes place here. Verse 16. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 15. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast... So they make this image out of metal or whatever, but it somehow comes to life. Sounds like the movies, right? Take it or leave it, guys. I can't explain it to you. Just take it or leave it. Uh, but that's what it says. The image of the beast might speak, it says, and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. How does that work? I have no idea. I'm just telling you. That's what it says. Verse 16, he causes all, the small and the great, 
the rich and the poor, the free man and the slave to be given a mark, notice where? In their right hand and on their forehead. These are not random locations. These are very specific locations. Because this mark, more importantly than the number and the name of this guy, is where you're going to be marked. Where you're going to be marked is going to be identifying you with who he is. Let me ask you something. When you're saved, Jesus says we're supposed to be baptized. Why is that? He says we're supposed to be immersed in water. Why is that? Because your sins haven't been washed away enough by the blood of Christ? No. So, so why, why do we have to publicly be put underneath the water and bought back up? Well, first of all, he tells us to do it, and he's the Lord, and we just do what he says, right? But there's, it's more than that. There's, Jesus is not arbitrary. He's not like your dad that would come in and give you rules and, and you would say why and you say because I say so. Well, first of all, he is the Lord and he can work that way if he wants to. But in most cases, he does not. When he gives us rules, there are really good reasons for those rules and he actually explains himself. The reason for the sake of baptism, the reason why we immerse, by the way, that's what baptism means. It means to be immersed. So if you were only sprinkled, you weren't baptized. I'm not trying to offend you. But I'm just telling you, that's not what the scripture teaches. And it's not because we're Baptists that I, you know, okay, I have to teach that because that's where I get my salary from, from the Baptists or whatever. Well, no, I don't care what the Baptists say. I, well, I hope they're doing right. I care what the scripture says. The, the scripture says you must be immersed after accepting Christ as personal Savior. Have you done that? Your eternity hangs on that. Then you must be immersed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? I'm already saved. My sins have already been forgiven. I'm already right with God. I already have a home in heaven. I've already received the free gift of eternal life. Yeah, 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 that's all true. But Jesus requires, as long as you're on this earth, that you choose a side. Publicly choose a side. That's why baptism is a public thing. We don't have a baptistry here in this building. A typical Baptist church would. There would be a place up here, a, a, a hot tub, if you will. <laughs> the pastor would get in and immerse you in it. Of course, we have a built-in hot tub out here in the ocean. And so we just got through last Sunday baptizing eight or ten uh, young people and ladies out there. And the reason why we do it, again, because Jesus requires it of it. Why do we immerse? Because, first of all, that's what the word says. Baptism is a Greek word, untranslated. It just means to immerse. So we go under. Why do we do that? Why would Jesus say you need to go under and come back up? Because it's a picture. It tells us later on in Romans. It's a picture of the fact that now Jesus' death, what did they do with him after he died? They buried him. They immersed him in the earth, did they not? What happened three days after that? He rose again. That's why sprinkling can't be baptism, because they didn't sprinkle dirt on Jesus. They put him under. So to mark yourself as a, say, as, a, as, a, as a person who's a follower of Jesus, Jesus requires that you publicly recognize, identify yourself with him through an act called baptism. So I am, I'm immersed, or I immerse myself. It doesn't say how it's supposed to be done. It just says you've got to go under, and you've got to come up, because I was immersed, because his death counts for me. And I come up, Why? We should hold you under for the number of your sins, right? An hour till we confess them all. Glub, 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 there she goes. Bring you back up. Why? Because Jesus rose again. So not only does his death count for me, but so do his resurrection. It's a gorgeous picture, but it's also be saying to my world, whose side I'm on. I identify myself publicly with the risen Jewish Savior. Praise God, what an opportunity we have to do that. And like I said, we have some young people that, do that did that this past week. It's an awesome thing. But what am I getting? Why does that matter here for the, with regards to the Antichrist? The Antichrist is going to require you to do a counterfeit baptism. He's going to require you to identify yourself with his death and resurrection in such, in such a way that you're going to be identifying yourself in the places where he's also marked. Marked in his head. Marked in his hand. 
you're going to be taking a public, it's, it's a religious thing. I mean, it's a heart thing. It's not just a matter of what, well, if I go down to the doctor and somebody puts a chip in my kid, they had the mark of the beast now and they're going to go to hell. Well, no. This is a commitment. That's why when Jesus comes back, all the people that receive the mark, obliterated. Because they have associated themselves permanently, eternally, with all their heart, with the one they believe has died and resurrected for them. With the one they believe is the king because he's reigning in Jerusalem. Because he can do these wonders and signs. But in fact, he is a liar. He's a part of a false trinity and a false, false baptism. And he's teaching things that are false and literally sending people to hell. And so that's what this guy's doing. So we're now we're ready for the thing that the feast de la resistance down here in verse 17 that most people want to spend a lot of time on, which is the mark of the beast. And we're going to spend a little time on it. And I know, I know we have 10 minutes, so you're going to have to listen fast. He provides, after receiving this mark, notice on the hand or on the forehead, because that's the way you acknowledge yourself publicly with him. That's where he's marked, so that's where you're going to be marked. He provides that no one should buy or sell except the one who has the mark. So it's, now it's going to become a commercial thing as well. And either the name of the beast, or there it is, the number of his name. Now, what is that? Who has a number after their name, right? This is Western culture. We don't think about it in these terms, but we're going to think about it now. Here is wisdom, he says. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number of, it's the number of man, which, by the way, is the number six. And his number is three sixes, 666. Now, we make a big deal out of this number 666, and I would submit to you that it's not going to be near as big a deal when it actually comes about as it is for us today. And it shouldn't be as near as big a deal for us. Like I said, this is the only place in the Bible where it ever shows up. We've got scores of scripture that say a ton of other things about this guy. We know nothing about him other than 666, 666. Stay away from 666. Oh, my phone number ends in triple six. My address ends in triple six. I've got to move away. For crying out loud. No. No, the number itself has nothing to do with it. It's who it represents. So let me, let me ask you this. How significant is the number 666 going to be to the people when this actually is coming about? When we've, also, when we've already, when we've finally gotten a reunification of the Roman Empire, number one. We finally got the final form of the final empire, number two. We finally had the final king of the final empire who's now moved his location to Jerusalem and set up an image to be worshipped on pain of death and is persecuting the Jews horribly. Once that's all done, and that's all coming prior to this, are we going to be sitting around, now, now wait a minute, does his name add up to 666? I mean, if you can't figure out that this is the dude, 666 is not going to help you. I would submit to you 666 is not near as important as an issue as we make of it. But nonetheless, let's spend some time on it so you can understand it. It comes from a thing called gematria, or gematria. It, the, the emphasis can be on any syllable that you want it to be on, okay? I don't know how to say it. In the Greek and Hebrew languages, which is what the majority of your Bible is written in, they had no numbers. The original Greek culture, the original Hebrew culture did not have one, two, threes in a separate list from ABCs. ABCs represented at the same time letters and numbers. At the same, if we did it in our culture, A would be equal to one. If I say, I want you to go down and get me B of this item at the store, you would know two, or C, three, or D, four, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the way, that's the way it was in these cultures. They both had 27 letters in their, in their alphabets, and they added up to different things. So, so for every word in the Bible, there is also a number, every name in the Bible. 
has a number. Every page in the Bible has a number that it adds up to. Every book in the Bible has a specific number. The entire Bible, I don't know the numbers, by the way. The entire Bible, though, has a number that it adds up to if you take all these letters that have corresponding numbers and add them all up. Likewise, like I said, every name has a number. Every word or name has a number. We, we always ask the question, so who is this beast? And of course, we, everybody wants it to be Obama, and the rest of us want it to be uh, Trump, and a lot of people thought it was Hitler, and then uh, Mussolini, and then uh, Vladimir Putin tried to make that one work. I don't know. And all these, we, we're trying to figure out who this guy is, and that's not the purpose of this being in the scriptures. That's not the purpose. What, 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 here's, here's what you need to know. The, the, this gematria, and the most important thing about this guy, I mean, how important is the Antichrist in the scriptures? I'd say he's pretty important. As important as Jesus? Of course not. Why aren't you asking the number of his name? He's got a number. He's got a number. Do you know that? Jesus has a number, and I bet you can't guess what it is. 777, right? You're going to guess that, right? You're wrong. It's 888. Why? The number six is the number of man, which is the number of works, which is the number of falling short. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. So if you're stuck in the sixth day, you're always working to get to the seventh day, right? Well, that's where man is, stuck in a place short of perfection. The number seven is, a perf is called the perfect number. It's not God's number, but it's a perfect number. You have a beast here with seven heads. He's perfectly evil. He's certainly not God. So it's the number of perfection. So stuck in the six all the time, can't get into the seven. So if, if six is the number of imperfection and seven is the number of perfection, what is the number of eight? It's the number of super abundance. What's, what's more than perfection? It's mind-blowing is what it is. What is Jesus? Three times that. That's who Jesus is. Three times that. The name Jesus adds up to 888. So let's get down to the 666. Now remember Revelation and the book of Daniel and any place we find uh, prophecy, it's almost always in code, and that that code is always explained, if it is at all, somewhere else in the Bible. Not in Newsweek, not in Time Magazine, not on the news, not on some preacher's sermons, not in some commentaries. The answers, when the Bible raises a question, it answers its own questions. If you'll remember that, then you'll get rid of a lot of these opinions and all kinds of stuff. The reason why I'm not giving you my opinion, because you don't need it. I said, I can't convince my wife of my opinion many times, much less myself. So why would I give you my opinion? Instead, let's listen to what the scriptures has to say about the scriptures themselves. So having said that, let's say this. Six times in your Bible, the number 666 shows up. Five in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Let's consider these Old Testament references. First of all, in the Old Testament, it shows up as Solomon. It shows up twice as the wages he received in a year. 666 talents of gold, which, by the way, is a massive chunk of change. The guy had a lot of money. 666 talents. Why would God mark Solomon, if you will, sort of as an antichrist? You remember what Solomon did? Now he starts off really well. Son of David, writes your Proverbs, the majority of Proverbs, writes a lot of the Psalms, writes Ecclesiastes, writes the Song of Solomon. This guy is a Bible writer and inspired by God. How did his career turn out though? Remember the story? He marries like 300 and something women, which that ought to tell you something right there. Guy is a total lunatic. Marries 300 women, and these women lead his heart astray, and he begins to create idols and, in fact, even worship these idols. He's the first king. Now, Saul was horrible, but he never worshipped idols. And David did some horrible stuff, but he certainly never worshipped idols. But Solomon turned to other gods, and so God marks him. This is what the Antichrist is going to be like. 
going to be an idolater. So that's the first thing we can learn from that. The second thing, we find it showing up in a name. 666 shows up as the number of descendants for, the guy, for a guy in Ezra by the name of Adonikam. The name Adonikam means the Lord of the enemy. There's another thing we can learn about this king who's coming, this Antichrist. He's going to be the Lord of the enemy. We've already seen Nebuchadnezzar's statue that he creates that requires, he requires people to worship the statue is 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide and specified by 6 different instruments that are played for it. So there's a third, third place. So we're going to know this, this, this king is going to be one who creates an idol and requires people to worship it on pain of death. Another place that 666 shows up very interestingly is in the story of David and Goliath. Remember the story? Got this power, powerful Philistine who, by the way, is basically supernatural. He's nine feet tall, this tremendous person. It tells us in, in, in Genesis 6 that these guys came as a product, get this, of the relationship between a demon, which is a spiritual creature, and a physical woman, and they had children together, and it created these giants. I don't, like I said, that's what it says. Take it or leave it. But according to that, this guy is some supernatural creature. He's certainly a massive creature, but what we don't realize is that he's marked by 666. Says he's six cubits tall. Says he wears six pieces of armor. Says he has a, he has a spear that weighs 600 shekels. Interesting. Interesting. Who also, who killed him? Was it the Israelis that killed him? The whole army of Israel, including Saul, didn't kill him. Who killed him? David did. Not you, but David did. Young David, what had just happened to David, by the way? David's history had just been revitalized, had been changed. God had entered into his life in a special event, and David was just a little shepherd out in the field taking care of his, his father's flocks, and then all of a sudden Samuel the prophet shows up with a horn full of oil and pours it on his head and says, you're now the anointed of Israel. He's just a kid. His life had completely changed. His career, he was not going to be shepherding sheep anymore. He's going to be shepherding God's people. And by the way, when they anointed him, they called him, what was the title of the Jewish kings? Messiah, all of them, anointed ones. So who killed Goliath? The Messiah did. Isn't that interesting? And he's marked with 666. Now, you can suppose that's a coincidence. I would suggest to you that isn't true. Gematria is in the Greek, of course, in the Hebrew language, but this Antichrist that is coming according to Daniel in the book of Revelation is not going to be either Greek or, or, or Jewish. He's going to be Roman. And by the way, speaking of Gematria, it is, it is the thing that you're most familiar with, the gematria of the Roman language is the thing you're most familiar with. Do you not, anybody here use Roman numerals? You know, those are not numbers. Those are letters. They're Roman letters. Gematria, I is equal to one, V is equal to five, X is equal to 10, L is equal to 50, C is equal to 100, D is equal to 500, M is equal to 1,000, right? These are just letters. This is gematria. They didn't use all their alphabet like the Jews and the, the Greeks did, but nonetheless, they did use some of them. The first six of them add up to exactly 666. What does that mean? I have no idea. It just does. I don't know why. 666 is also, just teaching you about this number, is also the sum of all the numbers from 1 to 36. So 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 plus 7 da, 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 to 36 equals 666. What does that mean? I have no idea. I'm just telling you. But I will say this, that the word beast shows up exactly 36 times in the New Testament. So, you say that's a coincidence? I would say I disagree with you. The title Christ, in the Greek, here it is. Written in Greek, that's Christos. Exactly seven letters in the Greek language. The way you come up with, and by the way, that has an exact number, I don't know what it is. 
It adds up to the exact number, but the way you come up with, the way you say 666 in the Greek language as it's written in your New Testament, but originally in Greek. The way you say that is you take the first letter from the name Christ and the last letter from the name Christ, these, and then you add in the middle, so chi, sigma, and you add to it a letter called a xi, X-I, in the middle. So the first letter of Christ, the last letter of Christ, in the middle, this, this C, I can't even say it. By the way, that was, the, that was when it was in a, in a subject or in a title by itself, it represented to the Greeks the snake to them. So I take the first and last letters of the name of Christ, the title of Christ, and I add a snake in the middle, and that gives me 666. What does that mean? I don't know. Take it for what it's worth. But that's, I, I find it very interesting. But, but how do, so how do we wrap this up? Well, I want to wrap it up by letting you know that you don't have to wait for the Antichrist because you can be one yourself. Did you know that? The Bible actually says that we have the capacity ourselves to be our own personal Antichrist. Did you know that a person who rejects Christ and stands against Jesus is, is for himself an Antichrist? I didn't write it. Look at what it says. Children, it is the last hour. Just as you've heard, this is 1 John chapter 2. Just as you've heard that the, the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. It's the last hour, guys. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. I can write Mormons underneath that. I can write Jehovah's Witness underneath that. I can write Muslims underneath that. I can write any of you who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice what else it calls you. This is... The Antichrist? The Bible is real harsh on people who reject Jesus. Very harsh. Why is it harsh? Because God's trying to pull you out of something where you're headed. So, so, so you're headed out into the street and the car is coming and I'm just going to let you go? No, I'm probably going to shout at you, right? And if a shout at doesn't get you, I'm going to pick up a rock and I'm going to smack you in the back of the head. And you'll say, why did you do that? Because of what's coming. The Bible smacks you in the back of the head. It's because he cares about you. You don't like what God says about you in the scriptures. Well, there's something worse. Something a lot worse. And God's trying to deliver you from it. This is the Antichrist that says, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Notice they go together. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You got a lot of people talking about God the Father. You got a lot of religions out there talking about, oh, we're all about God. We're all into God. We're not sure about this whole Jesus thing. Well, guess what? You don't get the Father either. It's a package deal, it's a gift. Take it or leave it. Open it or close it. Take it home. Leave it here. Whatever you're going to do. But here's what happens. You either have the Son and thus the Father. Or do not have the Son and do not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. God has limited access to himself. I'm going to make a deal with God. I heard people say, when I get up there, I'm going to work it out with the man upstairs. Well, you're not going to get to do that. Because God's already worked it out down here. And he's made the offering of a free gift of eternal life. And it's not magic dust. It is a person. The living Christ. The living Messiah. A real man who is also 100% God. Who died to pay for our sins. Sacrificed himself according to the will of the Father on a cross in Jerusalem. Outside the city walls. Bled out. Paying for your sin and mine. Balls in our court down. Will I accept what he did for me? Will I allow Jesus to pay for my sin? 
Or will I go as an arrogant person and decide, I'm going to stand before God, and I'm going to work out my deal, and I'm going to pay for my own sin? Well, you'll get to do that in an eternity in a place called hell. I wouldn't recommend that for you. But that is your decision. You had the Father. You want the Father? You have to have the Son. And by the way, rejecting the Son, you get to be your own personal antichrist. Not a good title, is it? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word that informs us, that gives us direction, tells us things that we want to know, and tells us things we don't want to know. I thank you, God, that you're a father to us, and a father cares. A father's willing, willing to measure out a, a certain amount of pain to deliver us from a greater pain. I thank you, God, that you're doing that. I thank you that you are our shepherd, that we are sheep, that sheep don't know anything. We have to look to the shepherd. We have to go by what you say. Even if we don't understand it, we have to go by what you say. God, I thank you that you want us to know. You could have left us in the dark. You could have just said, uh, because I say so, that's the reason why you have to do this. Instead, God, you went to great lengths through your prophets and through your ministers and through your apostles to explain yourself and to explain the world that we live in, to explain our own hearts, to explain where this is headed, to deliver us from... Uh, from an eternity without you, to deliver us from a permanent separation from you, Lord. There may be people here today who are separated. They don't feel close to you at all because of things that they've done, because of things that they, they think about you and things they think about themselves. God, I thank you that you have reconciled yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing that they have to do to be reconciled to you. They just have to simply accept it. They simply just have to say yes to your son, Yes to the eternal life and the free gift of eternal life that you offer to us. God, I thank you that it's so simple, that it's so completely free. Thank you again, God, for not leaving us without understanding, but fighting, God, for us, fighting for the truth, God. So we labor together, God, to do that very thing. God, we pray that your truth will penetrate every heart here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.